0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome everybody to Nessun Dormer, your chat about 80s and 90s football. A new voice from recent times, I'm Lee. And I'm back for a full episode, for the first full episode since all of this, I'm waving my arms, began in the last six months, my first pandemic episode. Um, I feel I'm returning to the warm embrace of friends from all of you out there listening, but also the friends I have closer to me today are Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello. And Gary Naylor. Hello,
2: Gary. Hello, Lee. I think we better avoid those warm embraces, though. We've still got a few months left. It's a digital embrace.
0: The like, warm like, bosom of Gary Naylor. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, very nearly.
1: <laughs> but we all obviously offer our digital embrace to all of you out there and welcome along. Uh, we are the Ness and Dorma Podcast. We are on uh, Twitter, Ness and Dorma Pod, at Ness and Dorma Pod. If you want to get in touch with us there. We're also on Acast and we're on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you can find your podcasts. Really. If you just put Ness and Dorma Football Podcast into Google, you'll find us somewhere. We're also on Patreon.com. Slash Nesson Dormer, where you can give us your support. Thanks to everybody who does give us their support at this point, especially those of you who actually did write to us and cont- offer to continue giving support despite the fact that we were a bit all over the shop in the sort of for a couple of months of the pandemic. So we really do appreciate it. We've got two membership tiers now. We've got a five pound tier where you can offer you support, and for that, you'll get some extra content you'll get the episodes early you'll get we're doing quite long episodes now and we release them in multiple parts for non-patrons but if you're a patron you'll get them all on the same day so you can have the the full six hours of us raving on about something all at once because it seems that's what you're into and who are we to question it so um also we've we've also got a 10 pound tier now which if you do that you get all the extra stuff plus We'll also give you a shout-out on here, as we do with the £5 tier, but we'll also have a go at trying to see what kind of archetypal 90s or 80s footballer you are. So please come along, patreon.com slash and where you can give us your support. It's much appreciated, and it helps us to keep doing this thing, which we do love, but we do need to somehow, you know, feed ourselves and the like. So, um, you know, it's helpful.
0: I'll, on that note, I think we should take a turn. We haven't prepped this at doing one of our names, so <laughs> Gary, Gary Naylor. Well, to me, I'm, he's a, a slightly ankle-biting central midfielder. Played for Shrewsbury in the seventies. No, picked up, no. picked up twelve red cards across his career. And gained notoriety. Once got an England B cap, but was sent home in disgrace for calling Ron Greenwood a twat.
2: No, no. I'm <laughs> simply shaking the head because I am, I am Mickey Quinn. <laughs> If, it, enough,
1: if anybody hasn't doing, seen Gary that's alarmingly accurate if he I'm had a do, tash
0: I'm doing something at the moment on um for the Guardian on a joy of six on assists without touching the ball and most of them are these beautiful silky off the ball runs dummies and so on you know Falcao and one of them is Mickey Quinn basically there's a corner again Newcastle Man United and he stalks Jim Leighton. It's not just that he, he stalks him; and it just guides him to the canvas. It's beautiful. Leighton's all over the show. Kevin Scott heads in, and there's uproar. But I love the fact Super. it's not just a it's not just a stand up foul on the goalkeeper. He properly stalks him. It's really it's almost sinister. It's brilliant.
1: <laughs> I'd love to see I'd love to see a a, a piece on assists that were just a total and utter. Shit, bit of football that somehow became in a Yeah, sense. like a
0: miscontrol Like
1: Darren Beckford for Nick Henry, for example. Oh God, <laughs> the,
0: the worst first, yeah. The, the most, most important
1: bad first touch <laughs> in history. There's something two, in that, Rob. That sounds like something for you, that. But, yeah, two yeah.
2: consecutive air shots that lead to a, uh, a chance for someone else, that kind yeah. of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Super. So there you go. Well done, Rob. Is anybody else No, we won't do any of the others. We'll maybe do it next one. There you go, Gary's we'll surprise, been done by Rob this week. We'll
0: surprise Mike next time. Oh, you'll <laughs> love that,
1: won't he? Yeah, um,
0: Mike could be a cultured, yeah. No, we'll, we'll save it.
2: We'll save it. Educated left foot. Yeah,
1: he speaks like he's like an educated left foot as well on these podcasts. So that does he's actually really good make sense.
0: Foot. Apparently, he's really good at football. I haven't actually played with him. But Is he? heard, I
1: hate people who are good yet. at football. It's oh, very I frustrating. do well.
0: They always go down in my estimation.
1: My dad's really good at football. He played for Blythe Boys and captained his army regiment and everything. And he... Did he? Yeah, yeah. He's very, very, very good at football. And I inherited none of it. <laughs> Honest to God. I said to him once when I was about 14. I said, hey, Dad, I don't think I got your talent in football. He said, I knew that when you were about three. <laughs> I just, and he never just mentioned it. To, to be you. fair, he never mentioned it. But he's a. But my dad's also five foot seven with bow legs, and I'm six feet tall. So I, I, I think I'd rather you know swings and roundabouts. So, yeah. anyway, okay. what were we up to? Patreon dot com slash You can get all of this incredible chat and be part of it if you if you join that. We're currently, as far as the Patreon content goes, we've recorded a number of episodes. Look at the goals from Mexico '86 and talking through them. So that if you wanted to join in, get extra stuff. That's what you'll get right now. But obviously moving forward, there'll be lots of other stuff as well. So thank you very much for your support. Thank you. Thank you. Um, If you want to get in touch with the pod, I've already said it's at Ness and Dorma pod. I've got Gary here. How do people get in touch with you, Gary? Should they feel like they want to shout about something?
2: At Gary Naylor 999. Nine.
1: Lovely. Rob does not want anybody to get in touch with him for <laughs> any reason. So You just said Gary Naylor 999. I thought it was four nines.
2: No, no, no well, three. It's four um, on the Gmail. Oh, um, you just give it like away yeah. <laughs> because your home address, got the three <laughs> dice, and, oh, and your oh, you know, and your telephone number. There is
1: mother's yeah. uh, <laughs> maiden name. Yeah. If anyone wants to, want
0: to get in had... touch, if anyone wants to get with me, come to Orkney. We're in tears. 3 yeah, so yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I've just had a crisis about my Apple ID, which I tried to update, which I never think is a good thing. So don't worry, uh, my my ID is already being farmed out to Russian uh, bots, even as we speak.
1: Right then. So, Patreon, <laughs> there you go. You could join the Patreon. <laughs> uh, so, one
2: one other quick thing. If you could be
0: bothered and you don't think we're completely shit, please give us a review. You don't have to put any words in it. Just click five stars, four stars, or one star. It all helps. I'm, I'm told that, the, you know. Put whatever words you ads. want in. You can just put five yeah.
1: stars and then copy and paste the rap bit from, you know, but you keep on actually, moving by five or something. You, you
0: don't actually have to do a review anymore, do you? Certainly not on Apple Podcasts. You can just click the actual thing. Because hey. I've been trying there's a podcast I like that's only got two reviews, both five stars. And I keep trying to give it more and more and just clicking five stars it's not working but anyway. It's not this one, I should I stress. think
1: big tech has beaten you there, Rob. I think <laughs> yeah. your cutting plan has been yeah. beaten by big tech. Anyway, right. So there you go. So we move on with today's episode. we are gonna be focusing in as much depth as we can on the England managerial career of a certain Manager careen, a career, so- careen, career. It was a bit of a career ring wasn't it? But a, <laughs> yeah. a career of a certain Joseph Kevin Keegan. So we'll come on to that a little bit later on. But before we get onto that, we always do our player of the pod. And we tend to ca- try and categorise these, don't we? Sort of as underrated player or legend or whatever. But we're just calling it player of the pod. And you can decide, I suppose. But I think we'll, the one we're going to do today is definitely not underrated because we're going to be talking about Gianfranco Zola up first. Gianfranco Zola was born in Sardinia and played for his local clubs for a little while. Small player, five foot six, etc., etc. Got called the magic box at Chelsea for all of those things. There's much to talk about. Um, I suppose he, he had a couple of spells. He had some spells with some small clubs on Sardinia, New Eurasia and Torres. And then the big move to Napoli came in 89. Do we want to talk career or do we want to talk the type of player first, Rob? Well, go on,
0: Gary. You can. This go is on, your Gary. choice, so I'll let Gary go first.
2: Well, I, I think let's talk about the the type of player really first to give a, a little portrait. And you've already sort of raised, I think, an important point in that um, he came to football. Sardinia is a is a kind of vendetta ridden uh, island off Italy. It's hardly you know the centre of anything, if we're, unless we're it's that, t- I don't know how to say it. Is it terrain sea or whatever it Good is? Morning. A- Good
0: morning to us, I think you're listening. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I think that played a part in the fact that he, he wasn't really noticed. He wasn't on the radar. So he's 23 by the time he starts playing top level football. And I think we mentioned this with Ian Wright. It, it gives a kind of longevity um, and it gives perhaps a, a, a certain, I would suspect, a certain joy from the fact mm. that if you're 22 and you're still playing in Serie A C1 or something, uh, knocking about on grounds like Marines, then um, when the big time calls, I suspect you wake up every morning and, and think, I'm Gianfranco Zola and I play for Napoli. And um, that that joy, and in particular it's communication, I think never really left uh, Zola and it was in everything he did it was in his public persona by all accounts it was in his private persona and it was definitely in his football he was a uh, uh, deep-lying forward really he wasn't a classical number 10 um he was mentored by Maradona and it kind of shows in his, in his play uh really 360 degree vision um brilliant free kick uh, merchant uh, good header of a ball uh, when the crosses were there for him a uh, brilliant finisher um, and someone who was an absolute jack in the box when the ball went to Zola uh, you just did, know, did not know what was going to happen and I'll talk perhaps a little later about what it was like as an away fan watching Zola which was unlike most other experiences uh, of being an away fan um, but when the ball went to him you kind of had to a, a kind of tingle in your sort of spine. What's he going to do? And a fear in the spine as well about...
1: i you of, said spine whatever. then, by the way, Gary. I was getting a bit yeah.
2: worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there was a bit of that as well. Um, <laughs> but the, the fear in the spine as to, you know, even though he was sort of 10 yards inside his own half, you know, he could get that burst of pace, the killer pass, the, the long distance one, two. All things were possible when uh, Zola was on the field. And... um just to, to round off how he how he played, you've got all these different kinds of goals that he scored outside the box, inside the box, tap-ins, crazy goals, and I'm sure we'll talk about one or two of them uh, later on. Um, throughout his six or seven years in English football, every time you watched him, you thought, what's he going to do next? And there was a, a, a kind of valedictory piece uh, in The Guardian which sort of lamented the fact that these kind of mavericks uh, were going out of the game with data and so on. I think that hasn't aged particularly well because I think we do have some mavericks around now. But Zola was a particular kind of maverick. He was a team man. He wasn't a hey-look-at-me merchant. But he was just someone whose football imagination was boundless. And therefore, he was able to play with players, play in teams, and just do extraordinary stuff and he never failed to delight, and that's why I'm really glad he's a player of the pod.
1: That team point is a good one, actually, because how many players with, with... I mean, we can talk... We will talk endlessly about his ability because it was staggering. Are that much without ego? Yeah, yeah, you know, how good. many of... The, you know, I can't think of any. Go on, them.
0: No, I think you're right. I think you almost need a huge ego, particularly to play number 10. You're the hub of the team, you know. Even someone like Letitia, who's incredibly likeable his own admission had a huge ego um, it's a really good point I think Gary makes a really good point about his imagination I mean skill is, his skill is obvious but you see a lot of skillful players who aren't that smart Zola was incredibly Danielson. yeah Zola's his brain power was just so high <laughs> in terms of like you say 360 awareness the other thing I think was really important is that he was really two-footed which adds to what Gary said about like there's nothing you couldn't discount you know if he gets to ball in any area he can go either way he can score from any distance um. Yeah, and the other thing, he reminds me of a bit of Human I mean, Son, not in the way he plays, but just the sheer likability and reliability as well. Um, I can't think of anyone who didn't like, um, Zola. Literally, I can't think of. No, like it's true,
1: anyone. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And Which I think extremely because extremely rare. Yeah, and I suppose because of that. Because there was no villainous kind of nature to him, it's almost like he doesn't get talked about as much as he should because he doesn't live in the memory quite as large as such a huge character, which is probably unfair, really. it is unfair.
0: Contrast with someone, I was trying to think of the first great foreign players who came to England. I was going to say in their prime, Zola was actually 30, but as it turned out, he was still in his prime. He still had six, seven years. And the first one you think of in the Premier League is Cantona, and Cantona stays in the memory as much for his villainy perceived or otherwise, as his football. Whereas, for you're right, there's none of that. There is just a great football, which it's kind of slightly sad that that falls a bit by the wayside. I
1: remember, um, I remember, talk about his arrival is interesting because I was, you know, you're trying not to research, you're trying to do it from memory. And when he arrived, <laughs> I'd have been, yeah, when he arrived, I'd have been, you know, in, in my 20s, early 20s, still at uni. And I remember, even after Klinsman and even after Bergkamp, I remember him coming thinking, oh, this is like, the, you know, there's lots of those, the the signing that signified the change in the premiership, yes. blah, 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 blah. And, and Zola, for me, was always one that went, fuck, he is a serious, serious signing. Yeah,
0: mate. I think it's partly because he came from Serie A as well, which was head and shoulders above all the other leagues at that time. I know Bergkamp did, but Birdcap came from Serie A as
1: a flop. Zola he wasn't came. having a good time, was he? Yeah, that's true. No,
0: yeah. Zola came, all right, he'd had troubles at Parma, but he wasn't a flop. I mean, he'd been in Italy's first team at Euro86 a few months earlier. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think... Was this, we were getting to the point around them. Ravenelli had come as well, mm. where they were signing players. Not who, you know, the whole idea of someone coming for a, a end of career payday was starting to change. Um, yeah, and I think Zola was really important because he was so good. He sported into everything. He was such a team man like you said there was there was no downside really. And I think that probably influenced, probably changed slightly, changed the perception of foreign players. I think
1: there was a brilliant. In- in- interview
0: I remember his... changed the ra- change the racism oh, as well. I was say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: I remember I think it was his first it may have been his first interview on Match of the Day because he he came in in the November and I think he's still the only player who did not play a full season In English football to have won the Football Writers Player of the Year. And I presume now he he will keep that forever because, um, you know, with transfer windows, nobody's going to come in a January window and win Football of the Year. Um, If Bruno Fernandes didn't do it last year, nobody will. Um, So uh, he came in November and he he was interviewed on Match of the Day. And it was a time when we were used to foreign players speaking good English, but they were almost always kind of Scandinavians. It was Oivin Leonardsson mm. and it was Nicholas Alexandersson and players like that, or they were Dutch, and we just expected Scandinavians and Dutch to speak better English than we did. But we we hadn't really heard many Italians speaking English, and I remember reading. I think it was in it may have been in The Guardian or something, that we're all going to enjoy his, uh, his interviews. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, here we go. It's going to be like, you know, Benny Hill's sort of uh, foreign accents and everything. <laughs> and instead, we got this really quite lovely sort of half-struggling with English, but mediated by shrugs and by that medieval face of his breaking into the enormous grin. Um, and his interview was just just fantastic he was he wasn't fluent in English by any means but he was prepared to try and he got that communication through the lens of the camera and I think he I think he could have been a, an actor because he did communicate through the camera do you remember when he got sent off a, a couple of absurd yellow cards playing for the Italy Cup. yeah, yeah and his face here. just yeah. completely fell It was just like a sort of five-year-old being called out unexpectedly by a teacher for um, flicking paper when it wasn't him, it was the kid sitting next to him. And I think throughout his career, and I don't think it served him well later on when he was a manager, uh, and I think You know, some of this will come out when we do Keegan uh, later. This ability to communicate um, was uh, 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 both—it was a double-edged sword because it allowed him to reach well beyond Chelsea fans, as I'll make an example of in a moment. But it also meant there was a certain vulnerability, which can be attractive when you've lost three or four in a row and you want your manager to uh, give it a bit of hairdryer. I don't think Zola was ever going to be uh, that man. And, um, yeah, I think he was one of the first footballers who wasn't a kind of exotic, strange fish, the way that Cantona was, um, or a kind of rather grim, uh, work-rate Scandinavian, like uh, like so many that seem to be floating about at Sheffield Wednesday and places like that. But he was a, he was an authentic baller, as the kids say now. Um, who was just like nothing we'd seen before, either on camera or on the pitch. The
0: instant impact was important as well, wasn't it? Like you say, player of the year in his first season. Probably some of his most famous, memorable moments at Chelsea all come from that first season, particularly in the FA Cup run. That goal against Wimbledon in the semi, where he runs one way, touches it behind his standing leg, sends the defender off into an alternate universe and then scores. It's just beautiful. <laughs> he scores There's a really
1: a... similar goal for, for Napoli. Right at the beginning of his career, he's on the sort of left side of the penalty box, right by the the corner of the penalty penalty box. Mm. The ball comes into him from that channel, and he does something very similar. The Defender just well, just yes. just freezes because he's under, and he <laughs> bends it into the far right corner. It's absolutely beautiful, yes. and then and he had big hair then, so he looked even smaller because his hair was <laughs> massive. And it was just, and then again, and but that smile never changed, Gary. Like you said, he he always peels away with this gigantic smile sorry Do about, know, yeah, but... that's a,
0: no no it's a really interesting point actually I hadn't made this connection with Zola and Wright but actually the two of the great smilers when they scored Yeah, and maybe it does tie in with that effervescence that comes from having to wait much longer no kind of complacency or entitlement or anything else I think that's a really good point actually
2: I, I saw that smile in particular circumstances. I may have mentioned this at, <laughs> an earlier part. No, no, no. It's, uh, I was in amongst the Everton fans at Stamford Bridge, and um, early on in the game, uh, it's a throw-in, and Zola is jogging over to take the throw-in, and we're all going, woo, woo, or something. And then quite spontaneously, everybody stood up and applauded. Um, and he he did that shy smile sort of put his head down and i think gave us the slightest of of waves but it was just a a lovely moment of opposition fans um acknowledging a player who was an authentically great player but one who had also um been able to communicate uh beyond his own fan base and uh, then there's the the kind of sound as we all sat down again and i think one or two boos after uh but but it was, it was a lovely moment. It was entirely spontaneous. No, nobody had organized this. But as soon as one person applauded, we were all on our feet applauding. And um, I hope he remembers and appreciates that because it was a nice moment.
1: When he first came over, you made an interview there. I can remember, um, and it's in my memories, it could be a false memory, but he had an interview with Dennis Wise. Did everyone see that one <laughs> quite early on, and that broken English thing? And he was saying about how you settling in and stuff. And Dennis Wise was being Dennis Wise, and 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 Gianfranco Zola said something like about him learning English. And he said, he said, well, Dennis is in that. I'm not going to do the accent because it'd be ridiculous. But he said, Dennis is is helping me, and I know Dennis is a ve- is very intelligent man. He said, <laughs> <laughs> which obviously was a total piss take, even in sort of like his um even in his broken English. It was and it was a really nice. And you had that sort of the two of those two. I suppose if you want to talk about how English football was perceived and how what it was becoming, those two stood next to each other being interviewed was probably a perfect sort of vignette for it, really. But I know that... I remember in that interview, Dennis... I can't remember whether it was that interview and it was Dennis Wise or somebody else later who talked about the fact that he was t, that, that, uh, Gianfranco Zola was teetotal total and, and, oh, yeah. and, and his diet and stuff. And obviously, we've just done the Arsene Wenger episode, which, which covered that in some detail. But, of course, Wenger was... Um, was a leader, wasn't he? He was the leader, literally the leader of the whole club. He said, this is, what it's, this is what's happening now. And if you don't like it, out sort of thing. And yeah. there's something about... And Zola isn't an obvious leader in the no, traditional but, sense, but there's something about the leadership. Sorry, definitely,
0: yeah. No, no, definitely. Like dressing room osmosis, you see a great player. Of course, you consciously and unconsciously copy things he does, whether it's extra training or whether it's... Yeah, I mean, not I'm, I'm sure... The whole Chelsea move didn't suddenly go to data, <laughs> but I'm sure no, but it would have an impact on some level, whether it's diet, anything, whether it's younger players looking at him. Definitely, these are how cultures change, absolutely.
1: And there is, and, and there's often, you know, people often talked about, didn't they, the influence of foreign players. Mm. And, well, the, the argument was always all these foreigners taking places, like, you know, there is about everything. <laughs> and then the, the counter argument was always, yeah, but young players will see, you know, we'll learn from them. Yeah, precisely. And I think, and, and it's it's a trite point. But I think it's a really it's one you shouldn't lose sight of because actually it wasn't just how they play. It was how they lived, wasn't it? So if you're a 14-year-old... And if you think about th- that point about Zulran, two points I'm going to make, but if you're a 12-year-old coming through then in Chelsea's academy, because by then they were signing players at 11, yeah. weren't they? And probably exposing them to, to, to first-team habits and stuff. That would have been massively important. Um, also, can you imagine somebody of his talent now not being picked up from League One until he was 23? Mm. It's well, just a, you know, which is the equivalent, isn't it? I suppose would it happen? Yeah, now?
0: I don't know. I'm trying to think of modern examples. I suppose it's not quite the same, but Fernandez is slightly interesting because he seemed to have really bloomed around 24, 25, but he was still playing at a good level. No, mm. you are probably. I'm. I, I don't know. I can't think of anyone. Having said that, you say that actually, but a lot of the England squads at 20, in 2018 all had history of playing at lower leagues, didn't they?
1: Well, they loaned out though.
0: Well, partly. I mean, some of you had people like yeah. Harry Maguire who'd actually gone naturally. I mean, Harry Maguire yeah, Jim true. Frank Rizzola are entirely comparable <laughs> to footballers. But, you know, like, yeah, Kane had been loaned out. No, you're right. Um, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's yeah. just interesting. It's like, you know, it's the Chris Waddle thing, isn't it? You know, working in a Sausage Factory until you're I 20. Have... Would that happen now? So maybe it would. Yeah. I, don't I think know. The, the, right,
2: the, closest, yeah. the closest I can think, but there were particular circumstances with the likes of, of Ross Barkley, who spent quite a bit of time on loan, but he had a big injury when he was sort of 18. But he yeah, came he through at sort of 21 or 22, which, you know, is a little bit older. But there are circumstances, but it's just the, the volume of information. I mean, how many how many Serie A scouts were, were going to Sardinia to watch yeah, exactly. Serie A C football? I mean, it wasn't, you might have had people sort of on the sidelines with handheld uh, cameras sort of uh, producing stuff, but then there was no way of, of Sending that across the internet, you know, you oh, had no, to it just sort of put it in a, a, a little yeah. packet and hawk it round. The, the weren't to the, the networks of agents who were set up, sort of looking at these uh, no. at these younger players who might be in lower leagues. What about that lad at um, that lad at Palace now? As a, I think he was playing for. Well, he was a QPR, yeah. wasn't he? So it's not quite the same thing, is it? Yeah, and he's not at level yet.
1: No, just no. imagine no. some scout going to Sardinia in the mid eighties. You know skillful but don't do much tracking back not i don't fancy him Clive. You know what I mean? too small <laughs> he, too, too small. small. Yeah.
2: Too small. <laughs> looks like he there's, enjoys it too much doesn't take yeah. it seriously yeah, yeah there's a lovely yeah a lovely, yeah. There was a lovely yeah, story no to him. yeah a lovely story in the uh in some of the the research that uh that you put zola in it's full of lovely stories um and uh, there's a a kid who says that he found out where where Zola lived and so he turned up on a rainy day with some stuff, you know, shin pads and autograph book and sort of shyly knocked on the door and Zola's wife opened the door and said, oh, come in out of the rain. And so he came in, sat in the kitchen while Zola talked to him and signed all this stuff. And then while all this was going on, uh, Zola's wife was making sandwiches for the kids, so he had something to eat on his walk home. And you know, you kind of think that's just too twee. But then you, you, you look at the kind of Zola personality, and it all is of a fit that that you know the 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 lack of the big I am, um, the the sense of 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 joy and the pleasure, and you just wonder, you know, if Zola, uh, say, a man of five foot six, who must have been kicked around playgrounds playing football. In Sardinia when he was twelve would look at look at those those and not think that you know I'm a born master of the universe like kind of Harland is at the moment at uh, Dortmund or something but but he's much more like that kid in the playground it's certainly you, you have to you have to kind of fantasize sometimes about our heroes it's no good saying they all have feet of clay because where's the romance in that and so if, if there are, players that you can romanticise that are not for your own team. And it's always great when you can do that. And Zola was one of them. I just want to raise one other point that came up in the uh, research and um, just get your views really, lads, is that looking at his playing career, um, he seems to play sort of 40, 50 games a season um, and not be injured. Obviously, he's not suspended because apart from that preposterous sending off in the World Cup. It wasn't preposterous, was early, by the got way. a yellow or red. Have
0: a look at it back. By modern standards, it's a definite red. At the time, it's iffy. I agree. At the
2: time, I thought it, it was it, preposterous. But, I, but anyway, never mind. At the time, I did preposterous. I remember looking at it at the time and saying, you're sending him off for that? Oh, come on. But maybe that was a little bit of uh, pro-Zola bias. But um, yeah, uh, I think that's a fair point, uh, Rob. But why? I, I, I've got a little theory about why he wasn't injured uh, as much. But uh, have you guys got any thoughts on it? Because it's a remarkable not- run.
0: Not really, but it was a great spot by um, by you, Gary. Uh, yeah, he does. He pretty much plays... I, I suppose I don't know if it's related again to the late start. I mean, partly it's just luck injuries, isn't it? I suppose he didn't fully play, because the first couple of seasons at Napoli played 20-odd games. Most of those were a sub, because obviously he was Maradona's understudy. So by the time he starts regularly and, become, and is a kind of star players, what, 25, 26? But then he goes for about 11, 12 years and barely misses a game. I don't know, but I think it's a, a great spot. And very unusual for that type of player because even though football is getting a bit cleaner, still being booted from pillar to post, essentially, in Italy and then in England.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you can start waxing about the fact, was it because he looks after himself better? Probably part of it. Was it because he was quite economical in his movement? You know, so he actually he naturally... What's... He naturally, um would play a welfare sort of as in his within his style, if you like. But
0: maybe there was an element just before you unveil
1: your theory. Gary. maybe there's an element of him being
0: too smart and seeing it coming. I always remember Suda saying that about Zico. I couldn't get near enough to kick him. He was too smart and saw me coming. Maybe there's an element that I don't know. Yeah,
2: well, um, at Gorilla Cricket, I have a jingle that says, "I make." Uh well, uh, is it uh, dubious points with hyperbolic conviction? So here's a dubious <laughs> points about to be made with hyperbolic Surely you should conviction. reverse that. That'd be boring to say. Hyperbolic points Anyway. It's, um, I think... And I, I, I think It struck me when I was watching his um, goals package from Chelsea TV, and it's just banger after banger after banger. Fantastic goals. So I urge you to to sort of look at that YouTube two-parter, although if they could just get rid of the music, it would be all right. But anyway, it's another story. Um, I think these players who are short, they they obviously take more steps, and they also take uh, smaller steps. And I just wonder often when you see with impact injuries and so on, it's, it's players who can't get out of the way. They can't skip round challenges. Partly they see them coming, but partly they're able to ride them. Um, and I remember, you know, people say, Usain Bolt, you know, how is he running 9.58 in, in Beijing? And somebody worked out that he was taken i think three fewer strides or something than than everyone else even though his legs were going the same speed and i think there's something in these players who are quite short quite uh nippy um who are able just to to get those one or two extra steps in uh in order to be able to ride challenges reduce impacts and and so on yeah when you see them doing the um you know the tires where they have the tires and they do those quick feet between the tires I bet he was brilliant at that with his uh, fleet-footedness, and um, I, I just wonder—you know—maybe some listeners might be able to to tell me the physiology of that. But do does taking more steps make I'm going it easier on, for to get out the way?
1: I'm going on Google Scholar right now. <laughs> <laughs> Less steps and injury-proneness, uh, injury incidents. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it is about luck, I think. But I suppose I think is it was great that he stayed healthy for so long. He always looked very healthy. I think that's the other thing. Yeah. Um, to talk about his, he was a striker, as you said right at the beginning, Gary. He wasn't a striker. Sorry, he was a second forward or, yeah. or a, you know, attacking midfielder. Sometimes his scoring. He first came to my notice in in the early nineties at Palmer. I did not really clock I wasn't watching. I wasn't like Rob watching I I wasn't watching Napoli in eighty nine. He came to my attention at Palmer, and straight away, he's, you know. And if you look at that ninety four ninety five season, thirty two games, nineteen goals for a, mm. for a, for a second striker in Serie A, just to get the next highest goal scorer was was Marco Branca with with seven that season, who famously ended up at Middlesbrough, and um and. And then the, the, and, and his strike partner, his, his often strike partner, of course, at that time was Tino Espria, who got six, which incidentally is the same number of goals that Dino Baggio got that season, which shows you how effective Tino Espria was being a, as a striker. And so in 93-94, he scored 18 goals. 94-95, he scored 19 goals as a deep line striker. Um, I think it's just, I'm only mentioning it because it seems remarkable. What I would say, there were a few penalties in there, right? Okay, and there were probably a few
0: free kicks which were effectively penalties, saying when they were twenty yards <laughs> out. But no, no, he is very good. His numbers are really impressive, even his only years at Chelsea—not quite as um, spectacular, but they're still really good. I always think with those stats, though, you should have—they should have almost like you know eighteen—and then in brackets, six penalties or whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, but even point. so, no, it's still very good. And that front three they had—Zola, Brolin, Asprilla—for a short time was glorious, um, and they won. They won a couple of Cups, didn't they? I think one before he joined. Then they lost to Arsenal and then they... In he fact, won that was Super a Super good... Cup as well or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that was a good tournament for him because he won it with Chelsea, didn't he, when he came off the bench and scored possibly his first touch, scored the winning goal in 1998.
1: Only won um, one league championship in his whole career. And he
0: didn't, I looked at it, he didn't really play a part in that. I think he played 15 games, but something like 12 were from the bench. So actually there's a there's a certain, for all the enjoyment he gave and had, there were a lot of kind of, bittersweet and sad moments. I mean, he didn't win the league, really. He left Chelsea the summer, Bramwich took over, and it all started to change. Albeit, typical him, he, they wanted him to stay, but he'd already given his word to Cagliari. Um He had a bad international career in many ways, ascending off against Nigeria. Uh, Euro 96 was his time, really, because he'd had a brilliant 1995 for Italy. Went into it as the main man, number 10 or whatever, ahead of Baggio Del Piero and so on. Scored, on oh, no, a made the made the winning goal in the first game and then had a nightmare against Germany, that really tame penalty that he missed or that was saved and they went out. So there were kind of quite a lot of bittersweet moments as well, but he was so irrepressable. It didn't seem to bother him. Just come bouncing back, smiling his face, always looking for you know, always looking for more, always wants the ball. Um I do wonder sometimes about his big game record. I I don't know enough. I'm sure Chelsea fans will know more. And the obvious counterpoint is the Cup winners cup final we came and yeah. scored the winning goal. But in terms of influencing big games overall, I don't know whether it was... I don't mind you having said that. Maybe I'm thinking too literally in terms of finals because you think of other games like Chelsea's FA Cup run which we mentioned in 97. There was the game against Liverpool when they came from 2-0 down at half-time to win 4-2 and he scores the most beautiful goal with the left foot. I think Hughes, Mark Hughes gets involved in a Royal Rumble with a couple of defenders, all breaks to Zola in the D and he just spanks it, top corner with his left foot. It's the most beautiful goal. So I'm pretty being a bit harsh, actually. But I do think he's a player we remember more for kind of joy and moments of brilliance than kind of cold, hard achievement, even though he, he won plenty, you know. He won, like Gary said, player of the year and plenty of cup competitions. But I think he's more about sheer kind of effervescence
2: and fun. That I, point just of- wanna, I, I just want to say a word about free kicks, yeah. because it's another one of my strange theories, but uh, I was reminded of Keep it again, coming. watching the highlights uh, reel from Zola. When we look at Zola and Maradona, they're, they're quite similar sometimes on, on free kicks, and they score lots of them in either corner. And you know, Kevin Sheedy was a bit like this at, at Everton. I think when the player is short... The wall is obscuring the goalkeeper's view. The goalkeeper, the first time the goalkeeper sees the ball and has any inclination of which side it's going or the moment it's going, and can therefore set it's themselves, is when the ball comes over the wall because they haven't seen the player at all. He's hidden. Yeah, you know, he's five foot six and he's behind a group of six footers. Would you and, get cues? Um,
0: Would you get cues from a tall player just from seeing the top say neck I, I, up? I, I think, I think you do, might, especially you
2: when, they take, when you take a run, you kind of three, two, one, and you can get up on your toes and, and get yourself moving mm. because sometimes they anticipate and move too quickly these days. But with Zola and with Maradona, um, because even when you're watching them uh, on on YouTube or at the time on television, you're not quite sure when they're going to take it. The whistle goes mm. and there's a little bit of a pause, a little bit, of, and a whip. The ball is whipped that's the, in. He's, he's off two overall, steps as well. Zola's that's, off, he's that's off the two thing. steps. Yeah. Yeah. I think there
0: are two points there. I think you're right.
2: One that Zola could go
0: to either corner. So if you have a free kick, say in yeah. line with the left hand post, twenty yards out, twenty two yards, he can whip it over, or he can do this big boomer. So that's a problem. I think the short point's really interesting, because you, you think of a lot of great free-kick takers from sort of 18.1 yards, and you think of Zola, you think of Zico in particular, who was an absolute master, yeah. who was also short, Maradona, um, so yeah, maybe there's something in that, it's quite an interesting theory.
1: You, you're full of it uh, it's today, one way of taking a, it,
2: it's, it's one way of taking them, which is the two-step and whip and uh, fl- way of yeah. taking, but yeah. it would I mean, it's not the writing. long run. Because the reaction
0: time is less than it would be from 25 yards, even whether a goalkeeper could seize them or not. It's a bit different. So you're, maybe that would explain the sudden... There's one at Blackburn I remember Zola getting, where it's a classic example of what you're talking about, In when they won 4-3 in ninety eight ninety nine. 99 mm. Just a classic two-step whip. I think it's Flowers, barely moves.
1: Yeah. He does one against Kievo uh, when he's at Cagliari in 2004, From again from that 21-yard yeah. range. Two steps, just left of the post. Bang! Keeper doesn't even move. I he slightly he to... falls away as he's hitting it as well. He has quite a diagonal body position as he hits it, and it's because re- it is like a whip. I suppose it's just incredible.
0: I've always been wondered. This goes back to Donald Bradman actually in cricket. How you get so many brilliant ball strikers or whatever who have unique techniques, and people never try to copy them. Like no one's ever tried to copy, for example, Beckham's free kick technique but anyway that's another story. They Stay do Venezuela. try to
2: they do try to copy Ronaldo's um That's true that's true but that's glazes. not but, right. yeah, but right.
0: Ronaldo isn't Ronaldo copied it off people like Janino. Yeah. Um did not the Barrow one obviously. Yeah, the, it's an interesting point um you say it, there was a there was a stat going around I remember it might have been in that Serie A coverage when he was at Napoli/Parma slash and there was always a stat that would repeat about his free kick percentage and it was a complete joke. It was some I forget. Was it one in three or something that he scored? But it was it was phenomenally high.
1: That um the the
2: classic the classic free kick specialist is also a kind of shooter type. Is he's movie? He's not very happy with life. When he scores the goal, he simply looks up. Where of course. You know, Zola is the free kick specialist. Rather, exploded that uh, that myth. Mm. I do think a proper free kick specialist should be sort of moody, a Stefan Effenberg, <laughs> a <Bernd> Schuster, <laughs> uh, a, a sulky a Ge- type of the ball what the you're and walks <laughs> think, back. That's what you're you, yeah, well, a German maybe. Well, they, they they are they are two of the moodier players in the uh, in world football over the last 50 years. I think, F- F- think moody yeah, is the uh, nicest
1: thing you can say about Effenberg, to be Yeah, you
2: yeah, 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 yeah. used to. Be called, he used to be called Effen Steffenberg as I in <laughs> Germany. But you know, the, the classic free kick specialist should then point at the ball in the opposition net and get one of his teammates to go and get it. I was thinking that's yeah, that's the classic free kick merchant. But of course, one of one of the other endearing qualities about Zola, and you see it in the goals, is quite often he runs into the net to get the ball, to get playing again. He's mm. uh, he's that keen, like a like a, a kind of Italian puppy up. Pomeranian Italian puppy. They're, they're German, aren't they Pomeranians? Yeah.
0: I, I, I made a slight, thing. a slight poorlix earlier. I said that Zola and uh, Palmer won the Cup, won cup in 1995, but of course it was the UAFA Cup. So.
1: Oh, well. You're so, in trouble. Good job you're not on I, Twitter. I to, Good job you're not, not on Twitter. That's all I'm <laughs> saying.
0: Someone <laughs> accused me last week of running away from Twitter. Like <laughs> I don't know where to start with that. <laughs>
1: I I honestly, and I've apologized for that, Rob, numerous times. But the, the, the,
0: the um, running away la, la, from the most vile place, <laughs> saying running away from a bloody a place where a bomb's about to go up and fall. Like, he, he, bottled it. he bottled it, he didn't yeah. stay in the towering inferno. He bottled it.
1: <laughs> the um, one last thing on free kicks is one he hits for Palmer, and I, I can't see who it's against because it's quite grainy footage. It's from left of the penalty box, I think, and he hits it. Towards the corner flag, and you know that that Ranson and ra- the, the, the 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 Roberto Carlos free kick that everyone raves about, which is just yeah. completely jammy because yeah. he's welling it as hard as he could, it bends like that, it bends late and comes into the right hand post. It's absolutely remarkable. It's on one of his highlight rooms. It's about the third goal. But, it's is is it's is it's, 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 it's still your goal highlight really? Presumably incredible. that's with the inside
0: of the foot, right? whereas Carlos. Like so, there's actually control rather than luck. Yeah, it's
1: the inside of the foot from yeah. the left-hand side of the penalty box, and it swerves swerved. I so love late. those
0: ones. Dimitri Payet scored one yeah. like that for West Ham, which swerved uh, grotesquely late. I love goals like that.
1: But you're right, inside
0: the foot implies a degree of control. Whereas outside the foot is sort of hit the valve. And I suppose you can obviously you can get control with the outside of the foot, but less so with free kicks. I think there's there's more luck involved.
1: The the point's a good one that we mentioned before, Gary, and you, you've already mentioned the word romance. But I think what makes him so lovely is he was clearly he clearly is a romantic as well, because it's like I'm finishing my career at Calgary because that's what I want to do. Because I want to go back home and do that in Sardinia, and then also then when he obviously got offered whatever you know just write the number you want on the check to stay at Chelsea, he yeah. said no, I've given my word, thanks, and I'm going back home. Yeah, it's great. And I think in all, in all of the the cynicism about modern football. And I know it's, that was 15 years ago, but it, even so, it's still It's a kind of shining light of why so he, he remains so loved and should continue to be, really. There's,
0: there are certain people, not many, in the modern world who you'd be genuinely staggered and shocked if you found that they were a. T- and he's one of them. Like, there aren't many, are there? So, human Silence today was another, but there aren't too many. Yeah, it's if Tom because, Hanks you know, so comes many...
1: out as a Me Too guy, he's all over. Yeah, isn't there are you so know?
0: many people who are putting on a you know, public facade, but I. I Hope to God, and I don't think he's one of them.
1: Do you want to say anything about his 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 coaching quickly before we finish? Anyone say about that? No, <laughs> not really. Not really. Kind of blots the copybook. It's, so no, it's beyond that purview. That's, <laughs> that, that's my excuse for not going into something yeah. I've researched.
0: No, I think Gary yeah. makes the point. I like, yeah. I never thought he would be a particularly good coach. Just uh, too nice is too simplistic. But I think there's there's a yeah point there and it kind of extends from that I remember looking at him a few times when he was struggling at West Ham and just thinking you know, you don't need yeah. this, you're better than this Yeah, I felt exactly that
1: Didn't seem to take much joy out of it either which is not something you want to see with Gianfranco Zola really, no. is it? His son plays for Gray's Athletic apparently Does he? Yeah, and he's on West Ham's youth books but see what happens there It's just something right. to live up to, isn't it? Uh, right, so that's the end of Gianfranco Zola. Obviously, ladies and gentlemen out there listening, if you want to uh, send us in a suggestion of a play you'd like us to cover, uh, then you can do that. Via, if you're a patron, you can do it by the patron messaging service. You can do it at Nessandormapod on Twitter, or you can email contact at com, and that'll get you through there as well. Thank you very much. So that was Gianfranco Zola. Let's move on then and talk about somebody who was maybe not quite as successful, which is uh, Kevin Keegan's period of time as England manager which didn't last very long. Um, It's probably worth talking about his appointment first, isn't it? He followed Glenn Hoddle after a bit of a a sandwich of one game for Howard Wilkinson, who was on speed dial for such situations for about 10 years, it seems, wasn't he? Um, He was, in many ways, Hoddle's polar opposite, wasn't he? Hoddle was cold, complex, a little bit weird, perception-wise anyway. Keegan was warm, simple, and about as far away from weird as you can get, really, before it starts to become a bit suspicious that he's so unweird, really. Um he said on taking the job, I know I need people to help me, but I don't need a faith healer. I want all the players to sing the national anthem and I want the same things everyone else wants for England. Reading it again and looking at it, he's like the kind of softest of Brexits personified uh. <laughs> in human form, isn't he? In a trap uh, suit. Yeah. I,
2: I I I made this this point when um Boris Johnson became prime minister uh, somewhere or other, probably on Twitter. Rob, is that um,
0: there was an? I ran right away. Uh, uh,
2: but element of uh, of what my my father said when Keegan got the job for England, I remember distinctly. Remember him saying to me. Well, it had to happen, so it's best we get it over with as soon yeah. as possible. <laughs> I, I felt the same with, uh, with with Boris Johnson, but you're right. There's a kind of kind of populist, um, kind of uh, bumptious. Or, bumptious is probably the wrong word, but you know, very positive, very upbeat, and you kind of think that just maybe a little bit like one of those Wild West towns. If we look behind all the bright lights and the neon signs, there might not be that much there. And um, I think with uh, dear Keggy, uh, as we'll find out over the next uh, two or three hours, uh, there perhaps wasn't that much there.
1: There was the weird thing as well when he did the first four, we're going to talk all about all the games, but just in the context, he was still Fulham manager for the first four matches, wasn't he?
0: Fulham in the third tier as well, yeah. So he'd obviously he quit Newcastle in very early in 97, when I think they had some new member on the board who was basically pressuring him to suddenly, or something anyway, uh, taking over Fulham was doing really well. They were on course to win the third tier, whatever it was called in those days, with over 100 points. But yes, yeah, so originally he said, it I was quite clever from the FA because they knew that once, they basically he agreed to take over four games while they found a new manager. I think they knew deep down he was such a patriot and such an optimist that if it went well, he wouldn't be able to resist. And, of course, that's how it turned out. So I think four games and then it was – was it three or four? Anyway, either way, it was a couple of months and then it was a, became official.
1: It raised an interesting point, didn't it? I think, I think we'll talk about this, but I think there's often talk about international management in lots of sports about how much of a stop-start game well, position it is
0: Yeah, and that became a big problem for Keegan actually he said he got bored he would, he so actually in a way he might have been better to stay as I suppose it, manager. it
1: raises an interesting point for me that actually can you be an international manager part-time I know like smaller nations for, sorry perceived smaller nations have, have sometimes looked at doing it I think Wales had a part-time manager for a while didn't mm. they um, um, and, and can it actually be done or is it just because it's seen as the wrong thing to do it can't possibly be the, be the right thing to do
0: a good question i i think it would be harder to do now because of all the external shit i think maybe back then i think it might you but you probably have to have a kind of compromise that wouldn't be allowed i.e you know keegan takes two weeks off before mm-hmm. an england game and his assistant i think it was paul brace whatever it was takes over at fulham but i guess that wouldn't be allowed so i think you would have to have a mature compromise but i do think I do think it was a, when he says it himself, never no mind what I think, it was a huge problem for Keegan, those massive gaps between games. Yeah. He just didn't know what to do. He had nothing to I, Keegan I, was all about day to day involvement and kind of building an environment of, like you say, relentless optimism, really. Um, yeah, and I don't think he reacted well at all to that. Yeah. that those long periods. Any Sorry
2: theories, you. Gary? I, <laughs> I think we should. I was going to say. I, 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 I think we should uh, just rewind a bit, particularly for younger listeners, because I think it was. At a time...
1: <laughs> I think you'd be surprised. Some people you write the... to us and say they don't, they didn't live through this. They love hearing about it. So you go, you go on, Gary.
2: You, younger than me is fifty-six, so. Uh, <laughs> um, at the time, I mean, now we think of kind of Gareth Southgate, and he was on the the radio the other day because he was he was um, leading some Rainbow Laces thing, and you know he's in Kick It Out, and and there's a the whole kind of PR side, and along along with that, there's the whole kind of England ladder of um, of uh, what's it called? Something Park, is it the um, Oh, um, training? St
1: George's Park.
2: St George's Park, and there's the liaison with the the youth uh, set up and you know the bringing on of of players almost through you know the creation of a kind of team england in some ways where you know often the promotion to the uh, to the england team i think mason mounts first game was when he was still with derby or something but it's because he'd been in the under- 21s and under 18s. But I think when Keegan started, there wasn't really that much of that kind of stuff going on. And talking about being a part-time England manager, I remember that the camera would always pick out Sven in the crowd at kind of Premier Premier League Premiership games. And I remember feeling kind of slightly sorry for him because I was thinking, well, what else has he got to do? You know, he's doing the early game at Bolton um, and then he's in the, uh, the late afternoon yeah. game at, uh, <laughs> uh, at Oldham. And Keegan it's talks because he's got nothing else alone. to do, you know.
0: Keegan what talks is about is he... this a lot. He said he was going to games, going to Old Trafford, thinking, what's the point? What am I going to see? The Paul Scholes and Beckham are a good player. <laughs> 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 and he highlights a game between Arsenal and Chelsea before Euro 2000 at Hybrid, H- H- I think. And he was there, and um, who was the French coach? Emma Jacquet was there, I think. Right. And yeah. there were more French players than English players. And most of the English players were players he knew all about, you know, Adams Keown and so on.
1: That was always um, my point. So, what are you going to find out? Have you got. I suppose, I suppose you, there are you are might elements, have somebody you know. who's on the cusp of. <laughs> yeah. Do you exactly. think they're good enough? Go like and have a, a look. Kieran. Kieran Dyer yeah. for Keegan or Chris
0: Powell for Sven Naka. But he said, he actually talks about it in his recent book that he did with Danny Taylor. He would be going to games and across oh, what's the point, basically. But he had nothing else to do. He was like, he was coaching the women's team. He was coaching the blind team. He just, because Keegan was all about <laughs> him. human interaction, though, wasn't he, basically. Yeah. And it basically kind of, because the players talk about that a lot, how he would spend a lot of time The Hoddle was completely detached Keegan would spend a lot of time to get involved in race nights, car games. At times, I think it's Fowler. I forget. One of them says it was almost like having your kind of awkward aunt around. They just stop, yeah. and so it sounds like a like a David Brent sketch or something <laughs> from The Office, trying to make conversation. Like, what did you go up to last night? And it just that like awkward silences, and basic players trying. To, not all, what I would say is all the players, like even those who had a bad professional relationship. Michael Owen had a terrible professional relationship with him, but they're all at pains, like really at pains to say what. Essentially, a decent, likable guy he was, and I just think none of them rate him as a manager. And that
1: shines through any time he opens his mouth. Really, even the whole meltdown thing—you know, you know—I'd love it if we beat them and stuff. There's still a decency that shines through. Yeah. It. You think, look what you've done to this decent man. You know, well, look at what this look at what this cruel world has done <laughs> yeah. to this decent man, sort of thing. And I suppose, sorry, Guy, were you going to come in on something then?
2: Well, I, 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 I'd love the. I mean, it's it's great when you I'd actually it. read it. The the I love it thing. Um, I think it was uh, was it Peter O'Toole, the- uh, oh, and Peter okay. Sellers did a hard day's night, and they did it as a kind of Shakespearean monologue. Well, you know, we need. Kind of second to to take his uh, I'd love it speech and turn it into a a kind of Hamlet like uh, monologue because it would be fantastic. Maybe Andrew Scott would be able to do it in a lilting <laughs> Irish accent. But um, I, I I I think yeah all of that is there and I'm just imagining you know the players meeting up for an England match in the late uh, later years of the 20th century. They've all been sort of playing. 50-odd matches a season and everything. They're all shattered and they arrive on the Sunday night, you know, and the Manchester United players are one table and the Liverpool players are another and they're not talking to each other. But they're all mainly just exhausted and thinking, God, we've got to play for England on Wednesday. <laughs> and then who walks into the room but this kind of of uh, Butlin's red coat personality there <laughs> who's, lads, lads, it's great to see, isn't it? Marvellous to be back here. God, it's good to see it. Scolese nice goal on Saturday and all that kind of stuff. And you're just thinking that, yes, they'd, they'd warm to it. Yes, they'd appreciate it. But there must be a hell of a lot of them saying, oh, God, no, not again, Kev. Please, we know we haven't spoken to a player in the last 80 yeah, days. He's right. he's give us a del- break.
1: Yeah, he'd probably delirious
2: as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: All yeah. oh, my just- sons are coming home this week. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, Major T, <laughs> yes. yeah. tell um, me about this playstation you've all got lads I've heard about them but I don't know what they are The um, tell us about that trip to our napper lads
1: <laughs> oh, I, I bet you got up to some stuff didn't you lads you know reveling in it but anyway
2: keep your like, phone to yourself over there Rio <laughs>
1: the, the ability of Keegan as a coach is going to be discussed at length through this isn't it and we've already touched on some of it about how he's fundamentally a kind of you know, a, a nice guy and, and a motivator, really. But it's probably worth touching it at this point. His record up to this point was that um, huge turnaround at Newcastle, funded by the Hall family, mm. uh, which got them very, very, very close to winning, as we as we all know, winning a Premier League title, um, and fell just short. And everyone can laugh about it now, but it's not bloody easy to fall that short playing the kind of football they were playing. That's not an easy thing to achieve. So there is something about his ability there, I suppose. And then he he left, like you said, and then he was at Fulham and done a very good job. He obviously had an ability, didn't he, to create a team and for them to win fairly consistently for a period, did he? Or is that... am I no, no,
0: no, no, absolutely. And even post-England, you look at what he did at Man City. The, but the problem with King, is there's always the same arc, isn't there, really? Like the this incredibly optimistic start and they have great times <laughs> and it always ends with that. You can just see it in his eyes. He's got such sad eyes when he knows it's turning to shit. England didn't quite have as many highs, had a one or two, but, but no, I mean, Man City in particular did a brilliant job at the first. They they got promoted scoring a million goals with Bernabe and uh, Bercovic playing brilliant football. So yeah, no, that no, absolutely is. Um, but I think there's probably, I think there are two arguments against probably why England didn't, I mean, there are a few, but I think there are two with England. One is that the pressure was higher, so that was always going to put, both from the media and also himself because he was such a patriot, so that was always going to, test his ability to, you know, keep his cool and everything else. And the other is the kind of level of tactical sophistication and uh, organisation, things like that, at the very highest level is always going to be highest in each. And I think even were found out, you look at pretty much every player talking about that era and they all talk about how they were found out tactically and there just wasn't enough going on, basically. One of them, I forget who it was, talked to one of Keegan's coaches, basically saying why doesn't he do any tactical work? And the guy, I forget who it was, it wasn't Arthur Cox, one of the other said, it's just the way Kevin is. And he's been bloody successful that way, by the way. And he had, <laughs> yes, but but there's always a level, isn't there? Um, and yeah. He wasn't aware
1: work. enough of the changing environment around him, well, I suppose. What's
0: interesting though is, and I think this is really, so we'll get to it with the Germany game, there's a certain, the, the, the end of it, there's a certain sadness in the fact that he did try to adapt and show he had a tactical side, but there's a lot more to tactics than just, Changing from four four two to four five one, you know, there are levels of organisation that people like us don't understand, but that mm. but the club players get all the time, and that's what was lacking. Because actually, towards the end, he tinkered a lot with systems, um, and painfully, the big one bringing Southgate into midfield, which actually wasn't a bad idea, I would argue. We'll get to it. That was the kind of symbolic um, decision that cost him his or well, not cost him his job, but led to him resigning. So. But I think just think there was a, there was there was no real defensive organisation or anything like that. Tony Adams tells a story, and he's got there's a detail wrong, but I'd imagine the substance is correct. That before Euro two thousand, where they played Portugal, they did a training game where he says Kieran Dyer, but Kieran Dyer wasn't in the squad, so I think it might have been Nick Barmby. But anyway, was asked to play a floating role like Figo, and Adams said that in that training session, Dyer, as he puts it, destroyed the first team. And afterwards, Adams said to Keegan. Basically, so what are we going to do about this for tomorrow or whatever? <laughs> and of course, nothing happened, and you can guess the rest. Yeah. Um, well, I, think, I, I think, go on, man. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I, I'm slightly, that story confuses me a bit because he does say Kieran Dyer and Dyer. I've checked Dyer, funnily enough, had gone to Napa with Rhea <laughs> Ferdinand to assuage the disappointment of being cut from the 26 man squad or whatever. Um, so the details wrong, but knowing Adams, well, not knowing him, but, you know, thinking I know him, <laughs> I, I suspect the detail is correct. The, um, the substance is correct, rather.
2: I think one of the characteristics of Keegan, and it's taken me a long time to realise this, because it's a a kind of much broader point, and it's one that I think um, that uh, a certain politician who stands across the uh, dispatch box from Boris Johnson needs to take on quite quickly, is that I think that the likes of me, um, because of... My privileged background in lots of ways. I, I live in in cynical environments. I, I, I spend my time with people who are who are clever, who know how and when to raise an eyebrow, who can see through um, charlatans, and uh, have what's sometimes called a kind of healthy cynicism. And cynicism can be unhealthy as well as healthy, obviously. But what Keegan sold, and he sold it well, and he sold it clearly to players as well, is hope. Yeah. When Newcastle were on that run, you know, a city, a whole city was galvanised because Newcastle, like Leeds, and we're getting a bit now with Bielsa, is a one club city, and hope is very seductive, and it's very um, exponential. In, in its growth. And you see Keegan going into places, and y- yet yeah, maybe it's not the most, ta- well, it obviously is not the most technical. It's not, it's uh, a tactical. It's not the most technical. But he was like this as a player as well. He just constantly bubbled up with this hope that was infectious. And what I've realized over the last four or five years in, in lots of ways, not just in sport, but in uh, outside life, is that you shouldn't really look at um people who offer hope with a cynical eye mm. because it really matters to people, and it's all right for us to say, well, of course you know it's it's Keegan, of course he's going to end up getting booed off Wembley and resigning in a toilet because that's that's Kevin Keegan, but um that it it, it really it, it can get to a lot of people and we can be overly cynical about uh hope, and um it can be dangerous as well, but he had it in in trump's keegan I, and he yeah. sold it well right
1: up until the point he didn't but
2: yeah <laughs> yeah well that's that's always how it goes yeah. as well that's yeah, always does. how it it always ends in a kind of shakespearean kind of tragic uh, final act uh, it, it's an arc that you see over and over again i'm sure it's in kind of uh, classical times in in uh, greek mythology and so on um but it's something that's that's deep within us it's kind of visceral and atavistic we need We need these hope bringers, but we've got to be wary of them because, of course, the danger is, and Keegan wasn't one of them, is that if they're as cynical as we are, then we really are in dangerous territory. Um, But Keegan, he sold hope and he infected people with it.
0: You're right, and he believed it. He he, believed it, That's why when he crashed, he crashed so hard and so quickly. He couldn't handle it. I think there's an important point to make about his relationship with the fans because I think that's what drove the whole... 18 months for good and bad. He was incredibly wary of the media, more so than I thought. And I was reading his But When he was unveiled, there was some photographer who he knew quite well who told him they had overheard two senior... He didn't say they were. He didn't say to Keegan. Didn't, Keegan didn't say anyway. I'm sure the photographer did. Two senior t- uh, journalists saying, let's get rid of this bastard as soon as we can. And that's what he's unveiling. So I think after that, he was incredibly wary. So it became all about his relationship with the players and with the fans. And it was all about hope. And if you watch it, I think you can tell his story in two Because the fans he said it himself. The reason he quit was because of the hatred from the fans at Wembley. It wasn't because they lost to Germany or because they were no. outclassed. But if you look at when he walks out for his first game against Poland, he's only part-time. He looks around the stadium. It's a beautiful spring day. And he sort of breathes it all in. And he's almost in awe of that all these you know, 80,000 or however many people who are here to see his team and support him and support England. And that was such a powerful thing for a short period of time. Um, but when it started to go wrong, and when it went really hatefully wrong against Germany, then he couldn't handle it.
1: I mean, Gary, you've made the point that obviously what your dad said about when he when he took over. But you know, your dad was a a sage uh, man of some years at that point, and you were you'd seen a lot of football as well by that point. I was twenty, uh, was I? No, twenty. No, I wasn't. I was twenty three, and uh, so I was about twenty three. I wasn't working in this game or anything, and I suppose. I'm trying to remember how I felt about it. I asked Robin a minute because you were actually a journalist by then, weren't you? But I was no. Well, oh, you know, I thought you were by that time. No. What's well, a I, civil servant? Oh yeah. Oh good God. No hope may enter here. But yeah, oh, but firearms.
0: Yeah. Firearms
1: compensation scheme. Yeah. <laughs> That's a patron episode special in itself. <laughs> there you go. So the um, the um, edit, but I remember. There was your point about hope, Gary. There'd been very, very little hope on display yeah. in that Hoddle game versus Bulgaria. I remember being significantly depressed at that nil-nil against Bulgaria with in Hoddle towards at the end of Hoddle, and then Keegan comes along, and in a way that you find this a lot with England. You think you find yourself going, "Well, why not?" Because we've tried the kind of dour <laughs> yeah. tactician thing, and that yeah. was well, shit in the end. So let's you know, let's let's have, let's have a go, recognising his limitations, but maybe you can just. There's always that thing is that because you've got plays for such a limited amount of time, maybe some you can just pull them together and say you're all fucking brilliant. Go on, <laughs> yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? And 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 I thought well maybe that will work, so I wasn't too depressed thinking about. it, I suppose. But what about you, Rob?
0: Well, I think you're right. I think, I think you had to suspend disbelief up to a point. I think we were <laughs> yes. always nagging that the the, the the way he had left Newcastle, we didn't know the circumstances at the time, but it was so impulsive, and obviously the blow up the previous season that, that was always slightly worrying. But I think you're right. I think there's a tradition, isn't there, in all a lot, lot of walks of life, to replace the outgoing person with the complete opposite. And I don't think that's ever been more um, the case than with Hoddle and Keegan. They are almost the exact opposite. You could really simplify their careers to Hoddle being a crap man manager and a brilliant tactician/slash coach. Keegan being a brilliant man manager and a crap tactician/slash coach. They were so even down to things like. um, You know, Hoddle didn't give the players any freedom at all. They weren't allowed to go out and buy magazines, things like that. Keegan basically let them turn up late for uh, Sunday night gatherings. You know, like it was supposed to be 6pm, they could roll in whenever. They could do what they like. That partly uh, didn't do Keegan any favours because not reality, but perception. So we'll probably get onto this. But all this gambling culture and things like that, um, I mean, they existed under pretty much every England manager except Hoddle. But there's a perception of lawlessness under Keegan, which I don't think is entirely fair. I think they were they were tactically lawless, but actually off the field, there were more scandals under different coaches, you know Hoddle even Hoddle was sharing him when he made him apologize, certainly under venables, so I don't think that's fair, but in terms of Keegan, i think at the time I've changed my perception at the time I thought of Keegan as a and this doesn't reflect well on me as a kind of happy loser, you know mm. I think even then I thought it won't end well. I thought it was worth a go because they, there were no other candidates. That's the other thing worth. Yeah, same. Exactly um, Ferguson yeah. and Wenger weren't interested. <laughs> Who were the other English coaches? I mean, like Alan Kirby, was doing okay um, in the Premier League. I and mean, what John Gregory had been top of the league that year. But I
1: mean, we're well, still talking about Joe Royal then.
0: Not really, because no, I mean, he had a, he was he'd have been at City, wouldn't he? By then, in the third division. Yeah. Um, so there weren't. So it, there was that as well. I think. I mean, to be honest, but from a personal point, I was at the point where I didn't care massively about England because of there was so much hatred towards United, which actually was an important part of the Keegan years, you know, when Beckham had people saying, I hope his son dies and stuff after the Golden Games. Yeah. I know. Yeah, well uh, done. Uh, um, so uh, I, I thought it wouldn't end well, but my, I've definitely changed my opinion of Keegan over time. I now think he's like, uh, you're right. It, the, these kind of people are so important, even more so as the world becomes more and more cynical and... Yeah. Um, yeah, just unpleasant, frankly. Yeah. Um, I, so yeah, I have much more time for Keegan now than I did then. But I, I would just—I wouldn't say—I probably thought it was inevitable, partly because there wasn't an alternative. The one thing I remember vividly thinking is that when he took it part time, that basically, unless they get stuffed three 0 by Poland, this will be full time very quickly.
2: Every time I watch the uh, the film, Mike Bassett, England manager, <laughs> I, it my opinion of it goes up because the observations become. Better and better in the review mirror. I, I must watch it again and review it at sportsfilmsreview.wordpress.com. <laughs> um, but there's there's a couple of, of bits in that because obviously it's a parody of, of different kind of English managers, and you've already alluded to the point. But it's I think it's an important one that you know one of the the skits in it is that. Mike Bassett gets the England post because there's almost no other England manager who's either able or willing to do it. And it was a time where the tabloid press in particular were, were, Still saying it's got to be an Englishman, it's got to be an English, be an English yes, exactly. manager for an England team, and so you're kind of going through the candidates, and you you, you made a kind of Freudian slip there, Rob, by saying uh, Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger, and there were no other English managers available <laughs> because we we kind of we kind of locate them so strongly in England, but there would even be voices raised against Ferguson because he was a oh, Scot, yeah, okay. um, and set, and Wenger is continental, and um. The, yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of looking around and, and. As they do in the in the Mike Bassett film, saying you know well who who have we got to to choose from? And then the other thing is uh, in the Mike Bassett film, there's a there's a, a time, it's a lovely time when he's he's getting bamboozled by various tactics, and the sub says, "Well, do I go to a four three three, or should I be playing in the diamond or something?" He said, "I'll just go and run around." You know, and <laughs> I think there was an element of Keegan that that was that was keen to send players out there to just run around because you know well, that's the that's the approach, you know, energy plus hope plus. Optimism equals wins. And it did work for and a long also, time.
0: He had learned that at Liverpool, where they could do that. It was very simple. It was yep. pretty much just go and play. Obviously, football moved on. Just quickly, there was one outstanding English candidate, Terry Venables. But oh, course, right, cool. he was spoken about a bit and the FA weren't having it. And Graham Kelly, who had just left the FA, said there's more chance of Jack the Ripper getting the job than Terry <laughs> Venables, <laughs> given what he knew about certain people at the FA and their opinion of Venables. That, yeah. um, that English yeah.
1: manager thing always reminds me did you ever see that clip of David Moyes being interviewed when he was at Everton by somebody that said you know oh, you're one of the most promising English managers oh god <laughs> and, he, and Moyes does that thing with his eyes and just goes <laughs> and just goes Scottish manager yes. Moyes,
0: <laughs> Moyes, Moyes has got very good fix, fix oh on it rise. was amazing
1: yeah. and the, 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 the journalist started going oh we have got Scottish manager <laughs> <laughs> one, one quick
0: thing on the whole idea this was the end of an era obviously in terms of Picking English managers, but also just kind of ramshackle way of the FA being run. Keegan wanted to have Arthur Cox as his full-time yeah. coach. He was told Cox couldn't because he was over sixty. Cox is actually fifty-nine. I was at a qualities act treating you. More, to the, actually, yeah. more <laughs> to the point, within eighteen months, Sven took over and had Tor Grip, who was about one hundred and forty-seven. <laughs> so I, Keegan, so Keegan was
1: mumra. Yeah,
0: there's a good chapter in Keegan's book on it, and I read it. And generally, it's fair and it's. You know, he, he he highlights the the correct failings. There's a little bit of self-pity, which I can kind of understand. But he also highlights a few grievances, and that's a big one, actually, that he never felt he had quite enough support um, in little ways like that.
1: We can probably,
0: we probably get on some games. Yeah, know. I was going to say, yeah. so
1: let's get on to, because actually because there's a good point there about just go out there and run around and play, because the first game is 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 the polling game, which, as you said already, Rob, lovely spring day and a huge sense of, of optimism. It's a
0: classic feel-good Keegan Day, isn't it?
1: Yeah and um and you and I think you've you've made a point before but Rob but Scholes obviously scores a hat trick this day and mm. Scholes played his best football under Keegan didn't he largely I would well, say for so England he, sorry yeah he
0: had good spells under Hoddle early on he'd faded towards the end of Hoddle and he had a decent spell at the start of Exerts but I would say definitely probably if you look at the successes under Keegan Scholes is the biggest one scored a hat trick against Poland scored 2 against Scotland in the playoffs scored a really good goal against Portugal and was probably the best player at Euro 2000s um, there, sadly, you can't say that for too many others. Some faded badly. Owen is one who I would attribute directly to Keegan. Others faded because of external circumstances. Gary Neville played the worst football his career under Keegan, but it had nothing to do with Keegan. It was just a personal crisis. Um, it's probably worth reading out his first team. So 4-4-2, yeah. typically at that stage. Seaman and goal. Uh, Gary Neville, Keown, Campbell, Lasseau. Adams would have been injured, I assume. Beckham, Scholes. And then you get to two problem positions, holding midfield and left midfield. And he starts with Tim Sherwood and McManaman. They would be... Con- he had loads of people who played in those positions throughout, and they were a big problem. Up front, Cole and Shearer. Um, England beat... I mean, England were already in trouble in this group because of the results under Hoddle. They'd lost in Sweden and drawn, as Gary said, at home to a poor Bulgaria. Uh, so it was a good 3-1 win. Skull scored a hat-trick. One should have been disallowed, sort of head and arm. But it was a good day. Keegan had told him to go out there and drop hand grenades, which... I think was a phrase that Bill Shankly had used to him, the exact same. Right. So that also ties with the whole idea of recycling what worked for Liverpool, but possibly and a didn't total work lack anymore. of tactics.
1: Because what does that mean? Well, that's like enough. go out there and run, isn't it? Go out there and drop hand grenades. Okay, I
0: sort of get it. I sort, but the problem came later when they played their next big qualifying against Sweden, when Skulls dropped a few too many hand grenades <laughs> and was sent <laughs> off. And um, but we'll get to that. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, just a classic Keegan day. You know, first game, first win, good win, optimism. Everything felt right. Um,
1: was there a hint of what was to come with that Berta jet goal, though, for, for, for Poland? Yeah, Paul. He scored very, very easy. To, that what point about say? Neville. Neville looked like a completely different species of person. Well, so enough, what he is. that was when Neville
0: was Neville's playing well. It was only the next season he had his shocker. But what I would say about Keegan's reign defensively, and it reminds me of Newcastle as well, the overall record is actually pretty good defensively. Um, let me just find my little note here.
2: Well, while um, you're doing that, Rob, I'll just uh, suggest it may have been Bob Paisley about the hand grenades. Because I thought it was Shankly, but either it, way, it, 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 it could have been. It may be just a, a boot room. But it was thing, definitely but, Liverpool. But he loved Paisley. Loved a, a military metaphor. One of <laughs> oh, one okay. of my favourite quotes was uh, going to uh, Rome to face Borussia Glad Gladbach in the European Cup final of '77. I think it was, and he said. Uh, the last time i uh, I went to Rome to face the Germans, I was sitting on a tank. Uh, <sighs> So, the best,
1: the best military related thing is Keith that is ever is Keith Miller, is it? The Australian, yeah, yeah
2: pressure yeah, is a mess. Cricket's not pressure,
1: pressure is a mess. Of smith up your arse, yeah. Well, <laughs> these things, these
2: playing, things yeah, yeah. can be overblown, as we all know from the Euro 96 front page of the Sun, but uh, but even even with dubious context, some quotes uh really really work. So, I just wondered if Keegan got that from Pay's, yeah, possibly. But, uh, it's so just fair enough.
0: His overall record, played 18, won seven, drawn seven, lost four, scored 26, conceded 15. So that's not bad. Leicester won a game. The problem is, as with Newcastle, whose overall defensive record was always a lot better than people made out, it was the big games where mm. they conceded too many, and yep. that would happen with Keegan. One thing, just quickly, on Keegan's record, and he makes this point, and I think it's important, is that it was... I think he had the worst win percentage of any England manager, I think. I'm not sure whether that's still the case. But he points out that most of the friendlies were against really good sides. Argentina, Brazil, France. Okay, they had one against Malta. But generally, he picked tough games. And so fair play to him for that, quite frankly. Um, I think that's the right approach. Whereas there are other managers who would kind of massage their stats and build confidence. Interestingly, you'd almost think Keegan might be that kind of person, you know, build them up with a couple of six nil wins, but he wanted them to test themselves
1: the the second is it the second goal in this game that the, the where Andy Cole picks it up and then rolls it to Beckham oh, the f- who whams that first time yeah. cross it's absolutely gorgeous which then yeah it's the one
0: with skulls handball it's like yeah punches it in yeah 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 they're playing of the, they played some have they I mean there was one of the many kind of subplots of Keegan's reign was the Andy Cole question because he'd been not playing well under Huddle but at this point he's part of the best strike partnership in Europe along with and White Keegan Lord. had signed him, of course, and sold. Yeah, him, so. the other, yeah, Rebrov and Shevchenko were the other ones. But yeah, he never quite found it. But there were times when he played well. This game, France away in a friendly post year two thousand. The problem is, it was always Shearer plus one, which, mm. and there were a lot of plus ones to choose from. You know, Owen Fowler, Kevin Phillips, at a time when he was European Gold Boot winner and so on and so on. Cole, is Shearer worthy of the
1: plus one at this point? There's a lot of kind of, you know... In my opinion, there's, no. Because there's a lot I, of kind of his his, his pace has gone, his, his, almost his interest had gone at this point in a weird sort of way. He seemed to walk around a lot. He, he'd become a bit of a kind of service-me type of player. I, I, Am I being I unfair? Think,
0: well, the problem is he was captain. That's the issue. Oh, yeah. And also, <laughs> and he cemented that by announcing his retirement after year 2000, which whether that was done cynically, I don't know, but it made it even harder to drop him. I mean... He was still, I, I, I don't know, this is probably simplistic, and I know a lot of Newcastle fans think I'm a twat for this, but I just think there are two distinct phases of Shearer's career, up to the crucial injury, which includes the first season at Newcastle, when he was, like by any any criteria, a great forward, a monster. Then the second one, I mean, he increasingly kind of crotchety, hold-up player, oh, no. still a brilliant finisher. Yeah, But I think, that, again, there are levels, you know. I think he would always get 25 a season for Newcastle in the Premier League, but the higher you go, the harder it becomes to influence. Part of the problem is that most of the competition, though, weren't playing that well. So Owen had a terrible period, which we'll come to. Heskey was coming through and Keegan liked him. Fowler was kind of injury-prone at the time. Cole was coming and going, even though he was brilliantly for his club. It was never quite consistent for uh, England. Phillips never really got a go, which I think, in hindsight... I don't think it was seen at the time, but in hindsight, I think it's a mistake. So... I sort of understand, I don't think he should have been set in stone. The other issue, though, know, is who'd you make captain? Because Adams was starting to miss a lot of games.
1: If you so ask really him, Saul ahead. Campbell.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was too early for him, though. No, he wasn't even a regular. But yeah, yeah. So I sort of see it. But no, I think Shearer was a problem at Euro 2000, partly because of the way, the weird way Keegan wanted to use him and Owen. Like He wanted to cheer on the last man and Owen dropping in to league play, which just seems completely. We'll, camp- we'll come to 20.
1: that, won't we, for Euro 2000.
0: Yeah, Shut
2: up, Rob. <laughs> just just on Shearer, I mean, Shearer was a bit of a reverse Ian Wright and um, Gianfranco Zola that we were talking about earlier because I think he was scoring hat-tricks for Southampton when he was 16. And uh, he played a lot of football, picked up a lot of injuries, must have woken up, you know, sort of with aches and pains every morning. And maybe there was just a little bit of the hunger, a little bit of the edge going off. Uh, I'm, I'm not what? sure.
0: What I would say, is, we'll get to it, but it wasn't as bad as I remembered at Euro 2000, actually. We'll come to that. He played pretty well. But I was going to say also, I think it breaks into four phases, Keegan's thing. So phase one is literally two games. The the 3-1 against Poland and then a one all friendly draw against Hungary, which is kind of meaningless because it's towards the end of the season. and everyone's, So that's it. That's the that's the honeymoon. Then the, the third game is Sweden. They play two um, Euro qualifiers at the end of the season, which obviously is a bad idea at the best time. times. So we're into June by now. And that's when phase two, when reality kind of starts to bite a bit. This
1: is June 1999, just to be clear.
0: So it's post-Man United treble as well. So there's all that euphoria. Um, And it just wasn't a good time, basically, to be playing games. I mean, England were already in the shit anyway. By now, they're realistically playing for a playoff place. So Sweden had already kind of set up a big lead in the group. And it was between England and Poland for a playoff place.
1: So the Sweden game then, should we talk about the Sweden game?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not much to say. It's a dog <laughs> of a game. Nail, he, nil nil. nil. Skulls was sent on. he There were three horror challenges, like three unquestionable straight reds now. It's horror. Basically, he he was far too hyped up. Whether that was a Poland thing, whether Keegan, I don't know. But he, it was the closest he came to the kind of Gascoigne in the 91 FA Cup final. Just like this crazy manic energy. He should have gone after about 20 seconds. I'm not exaggerating. He does an <laughs> over-the-ball two-footer on Hawken Mills, who ended up Having a basically a perforation in his thigh. I think David Lacey wrote that in The Guardian that he looked like he walked into a javelin or something like that. <laughs> anyway, didn't get sent off, didn't get even booked, got booked later, and then second half went off. Um yeah, <laughs> actually this is quite another Lacey um quote. Brilliant. He was talking about the injuries Keegan had, which there were quite a few before this game. He said, as this was not bad enough, Keegan also found himself the victim of reincarnation. In that Paul Skulls apparently woke up on Saturday morning convinced he was Nobby Styles. <laughs> Skulls is a tough but normally composed footballer. Against Sweden, however, he was a sending off waiting to happen. It, um,
1: I feel yeah. this is the point at which we must invite Gary in for his uh, treatise oh, yeah, yeah, on yeah, why yeah, Paul Skulls is you know, shit.
2: You know my uh, you know I you know I mentioned earlier my uh, my Twitter handle. <laughs> That's why I'm not going to say anything <laughs> about Paul Skulls. <Scholes. laughs> um so So i'll take the fifth on that one
0: (laughs) poland beat bulgaria the same weekend which meant england were third and now in a bit of trouble because four days later or three days whatever they drew away to 10-man bulgaria which was a shit result not least because poland beat luxembourg the same day so that meant england were three behind poland with (coughs) two games to play in other words, in a wee bit of bother. <coughs> um, yeah, there's not much to say about the world All really. Not another not great game, not particularly convincing. I mean, I do have a bit of sympathy. It was disjointed, like I said, end of season. It's a bad time to play games like that.
1: The team for that game was Seaman Neville, was so, club- Sherwood, Keown Campbell again, David Beckham, David Batty and Alan Shearer, Cole, Skull. So, so have you got Batty and Sherwood as the midfield too there?
0: Say that, yeah, because Skulls would be suspended, presumably.
1: No, That's sorry, a- I'm talking about a Sweden game. Oh, say,
0: say the team again, go on.
1: So, t- so it's Neville Lasso, Sherwood, Keown, Campbell, Beckham, Batty, Shearer, Andy Cole, Skulls.
0: And so maybe he had Skulls dropping grenades on the left. I can't remember. I think remember he was. Him. He's
1: playing He's playing in 11 Skulls, so I'm guessing he must, he's over on yeah, the left, yeah. I guess,
0: which is a bit weird, actually, given how well he played. That's the thing. People talk about Keegan being too attacking. Now, times when he was. But there are other times when actually like he picked three at the back or five at the back. He did try. I mean, he almost the problem is at Euro 2000, he became so, I think, became so paranoid about the tactical criticism that he lurched from one extreme to the other. Yeah. So he'd go hyper-defensive at times. But anyway, we'll come to all because, that. Because,
1: you know, a, a Sherwood batty midfield is not what you want to unlock a team like Sweden, is it? No, but I actually don't mind that too much. If you've right. got two
0: wingers and or scores as a playmaker from the left and two forwards, I actually don't mind that balance. But it just depends on a lot of other things as Mm. well. Um,
2: I I just want to make a a kind of observation and ask a question, really, which to some extent we've already answered. But I remember a conversation with my uh, brother who spent sort of four years in the uh, late eighties living in Bremen in Germany, and he used to go and watch Werder Bremen at the times and stuff like this, but obviously you watch German football on the on the telly and he said what you've what you've got to remember he said is that um, with German football each of the sides has a way of playing, and the players fit into the way of playing um and you know the whole the whole club is set up to produce yeah. players who fit into this way now we're we're kind of you know. With the advent of um, all these blogs about tactics and much more interest and optostats stats and uh, Lamasté, how do you say it? Lamastéa is it at, uh, at Barcelona, the kind of academy? Oh yeah, Lamastéa. Yeah, yeah, right. the, yeah. yeah, Massive, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're all kind of attuned to that. But in the in the late in Mastea the late, is uh, ground. Yeah. All <laughs> yeah. oh, right. Um, at uh, in the late nineties, the there wasn't much talk about teams having identities or having philosophies. Apart from IACs. Yeah, Yeah. maybe maybe there was... was, But it it was definitely seen as a as a kind of slightly cheating continental way of going yes. about football. And there was a
1: factory that, to produce players to sell.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, that, that what what you needed to do for England is to simply put 11 players who were the best 11 available and somehow get them into a, a way of playing. But you definitely picked the 11 best players and uh, and then you decided what you were going to do with them. Um, do we see any kind of identity coming out of of keegan in a way that perhaps no. his newcastle side did have an identity because it was you know it was the charge of the light brigade sort of every match although that works better in the rear view mirror than it did at the time no
0: i the funny thing is of course they went when they when keegan left they thought they were getting something completely different in svenior and ericsson but actually he was very similar pick the best players and work out the system no the only identity i think with keegan is that there was just a kind of it'll be all right in the night field yeah put a load of good players out and let them play yeah, And again, I have a bit of sympathy with that because you hear even someone like Soudis talk about Liverpool, they all say exactly the same, you know, all these stories. That, and I know it's slightly self-mythologising, but I think there's truth in it. You know, Ronnie Moran would say to him, you know, he went to Ronnie Moran for his debut and said, what should I be doing then? And he said, basically said, you want me to say had to play football and all that <laughs> stuff. Why do you think we bought you? And they love all that, but I think it's true in it. And they were the best team in Europe for a long time. So, but the problem is, if things had moved on. So, no, I don't think there was an identity because that's the, probably the defining thing from everything I've read and remember is basically just a lack of kind of tactical awareness and just smarts generally. They were getting played through too often. It wasn't that they were. Gung ho all the time. It really wasn't that. Like can change systems a lot, but it was just there wasn't a. It was just kind of a a surface deep tactical tactical awareness, you know. Yeah.
1: Clough, the lot of people said Clough didn't know anything about tactics, did they? But but you pick up that point, though. But you knew a Clough team, didn't you? Yeah. You know, in terms of how it worked, and and he always, and I think he, because he was a genius with this stuff. He 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 overplayed the kind of you know get the ball and give it to somebody in the same colour shirt. It's a very simple game. he yeah, was he, very
0: good at specific roles, wasn't he? Like, for example, yeah. he loved set of forwards who could turn a defender. Yeah. Um, John McGovern knew exactly what he should do. And Viv Anderson always tells about, like, oh, Keane, what was it he said? To and Keen, he
1: had playmakers. Keen. He always had playmakers, yeah. you know. So it's, it's, I think he,
0: with him, yeah, there was an element of identifying players better. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: And, and with that it Liverpool bit, side, yeah. that Liverpool side developed a tactic which was absolutely new to to me and I, I think certainly new to English football, when they played the away in Europe they spent well the back pass was, was one <laughs> of them. the back foot but, but wow. yeah. <laughs> Well this was uh, but this was this was part of it is they spent the first thirty minutes of a European away leg uh, quieting the crowd by which yeah they just passed the ball around at the back, you know sort of inviting the opposition on in the way that that you know you see teams doing now and then and then playing on the break, but there was a lot of of talk at the time about a phrase of you know earning the right to play and uh, the the boot room at Liverpool earned the right to play by making the crowd quiet, killing the game, and everything yeah. was and then. They would spring, and the likes of Rush and Dalgleish—you know, Dalgleish with a killer pass every five minutes, Rush with a uh, with his runs. So I, I I think it's suited. It's it's hard to tell, but there's there's a, a certain kind of of Englishness, perhaps, which is dubious of of science and dubious of of the boffins. but. There's quite a few who are quite keen on science, quite keen on the buffins, but are also keen on saying, "Oh, you know, we just go out there. <laughs> we don't really know what we're doing." Oh, yes, you do. And I yeah, think there was, was totally, an element yeah. of that.
1: There was a yeah. brilliant with Keegan. Thing.
2: With Keegan, he wasn't keen on the buffins, and he didn't know what was going on out there. That was, was- the. That was the
1: problem? There was a, a big thing about England and penalties. Did you ever see that documentary about four sports scientists on, oh, saying how it's it's all about repetition and it's all about you know, yeah. And then Shearer would come on and just go, no, it isn't. Yeah, <laughs> you can't replicate.
0: Because no, you, 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 can't, look, rep- you can't replicate the pressure. Well, the
1: sports scientists say because yeah, well, they ta- they've never taken one, have they? Yeah, look and, and that,
0: Fouledo, yeah. they still did about yeah. seven million putts,
1: and that's exactly yeah. what the um, yeah exactly. that's exactly what the sports scientists say. So how come Tiger Woods can <laughs> nail a nine foot putt? Every single time then, because it's... Anyway, I, they, sorry, we're, we're they'd digressing. Interview, they'd
2: interview someone like Paul Breitner, wouldn't he, He'd turn up as a talking head. And they'd say, why are Germany so good at penalties? And Breitner would say, because of your practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was it, you know?
0: It reminds me of the old Ian Chappell comment in cricket when he was asked, why Australia have so many good young players? Because we fucking pick them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: It's so true. I, 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 I've Ockens often raiser, said... You know. yeah, I've <laughs> often said this, that... Um, that when you look at all the successful people, even outrageous geniuses, you know, we'll throw in sort of Ronnie O'Sullivan and Michael Van Gerwen and so on. They... They do training, but most of the time they practice. Whereas in English football, it's always been training. And then you say, oh, this kid's a bit keen. You know, he stayed behind half an hour practicing his free kicks. Like somehow it's the training, yeah. the running around for three hours that makes you a better player. On his own. And, not, and not the 30 minutes actually practicing Without the skill.
1: What a weirdo. Do one. not.
2: <laughs> do not get me on corners. Do not get me on why players don't practice corners in the uh, in the warm-ups for matches to well, get I to love no matter what, is.
1: what level of football you observe throw ins are equally terrible. How yeah. oh, is that possible? I know. They're all equally yeah. terrible.
0: Oh Walker Peters who was done the other week for a
1: foul anyway. It's just it's they like they don't even hit the person's feet or anything, it's staggering. <laughs> and you'd literally got a ball in two hands. If that was oh, going to my rugby, that was a rugby field, you'd get bollocked well, but anyway.
2: Well, hey, absolutely. I could go on. Absolutely. I always say with corners, the number of times they hit the first man. It's like in, in rugby, if you constantly hit the crossbar when you were taking a penalty or a, or a drop goal or something, it's just ridiculous. There
1: probably some money in that, but anyway, the, anyway <laughs> so where were we up to? We were up to the so, Bulgaria draw, weren't we, and then the Luxembourg yeah. game. So the
0: that's court. the end of the ninety-eight ninety-nine season, start of 1999-2000, two games in four days for England. Uh, stuffed Luxembourg six 0 five 0 a half time Shearer a hat trick blah blah blah. Kieran Dyer had a really
1: perky debut. Luxembourg, dude, debut. that Mark Lawrence referred to as a pub team on match <laughs> day that, that week. In the in between times, and they beat Luxembourg. Forget that performance. They're a pub team.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think Dyer had a good debut. I think of right back. But anyway, so that meant they went to Poland. Basically, uh, if either team won, they would qualify. Sweden had already won the group. Either team won, they would get into the playoffs. If it was a draw, it'd be kicked down the road to Poland, Sweden which was in Sweden, and it would mean that Poland would have to get a draw in Sweden as well. Anyway, the England game was a stinker, 0-0, David Batty was sent off late on, Pierce came back I think for these two games at the age of 247 or something. <laughs> um, yeah, just another forgettable game, really. Um, what it meant was that yeah, as I said, it went down the road to Sweden. Sweden were obviously far better than Poland. The issue was that Sweden didn't have to qualify it didn't have to win it, so would they bother? Turns out they did. They won 2 0. It was quite nervy that The first goal didn't come till after the hour. Um but anyway, it meant that England got squeaked into a playoff. Um despite winning what, three games in the group, two of them against Luxembourg.
1: Then there's a friend, then there's a friendly against Belgium.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, that was just a typical... The thing I remember about there were a few debuts. Steve Guppy, who was the another they were looking at on the left wing. Frank Lampard, who at that stage was kind of an emerging player, wasn't the player would become. Kevin Phillips.
1: This was I think just after I think was this, he was this, this the just, stadium in light. Was this just after Guppy had ended Chelsea's championship hopes?
0: Not a few, a few months after, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, that yeah. was the back in the previous goal. season. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he was a decent player. England had huge problems on the left of midfield. He tried so many players there. The biggest problem wasn't just that he didn't have a quality player. I mean, we look now; right footer on the left is normal, but back then it wasn't. They had it lasted about
1: left... five or six years. That left yeah, footed, it dirt,
0: didn't it? They were trying to... everything, but it was worse under Keegan. They had they hardly. You look at the team they picked for the big games, and there were essentially no left footed players in it at all because <laughs> he would end up with Lasso and Pierce missed the Euros. He ended up with Phil Neville at left back, who had a half decent left foot, but he was right footed. And then right wing, so left wing was a combination of Mannam and Wise and people like that. They were all right footers, so it was a, comp- a really badly balanced team. So I understand him trying Guppy. Obviously, it didn't work, but worth we'll a look.
1: And then you get the two. The two well, then we're on to the two Scotland games, aren't we?
0: Yeah, in the November. So the Battle of Britain. Um, we can imagine. Why
1: was bike. that scheduled like that? And would that happen again now? Two games. How do you mean? In between two home nations like that, playing each other, four days apart.
0: Well, they used to it used to be. It was just a playoff, home and away, four days apart. And it was just Oh, a it's the playoff,
1: tour. isn't it? Oh yeah, yes. keep up, Lee. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Read the yeah. research, Lee. Of <laughs> course, so, it's scheduled like that because it's a fucking knockout playoff, Lee. You idiot. Yes, yeah, so. but
0: you're right. They could have fixed the draw, but anyway, yeah. So it was Saturday <laughs> at Hamden. Um, Skull scored two excellent goals. England won 2-0. Very comfortable. Keegan was getting praised for his tactics, actually, because he played Sol Campbell at right back and they're quite a narrow defence. Is Paul well, back in in this game? Probably. He came and went... The problem by then, he was at Borough by then. He'd been bombed right. out by Julio. So he wasn't... This is part of the problem um, Keegan had. If you look at his teams, on paper, they're brilliant. But you have to remember the, where people were in their careers. Yeah. So he had a lot of really good players who had just passed it. Shearer Ince. Inst- Adams to a lesser extent, but still passed it. And a lot of good players like Owen and Gary Neville were having bad periods and so on and so on. Seaman also was having a bad period, a bit of crisis confidence. But anyway, um, so a really good 2-0 win. Everyone assumes that's it. Done. Back to Wembley. And then they make a a bollocks of it completely. They lost 1-0, so they went through, but um, Don Hutchins got in the first half. Seaman made a really good save late on, I think from Christian Daly. Um... And there's a quite a funny thing. Pierce was not in the squad, I think he was injured or whatever. And he said he was at the game. No, that's right. Yeah, Keegan had invited him to be around the squad just because he was Stuart Pierce and everything. And so he ended up watching the game in the front. and he said, I have never been as fuming leaving a game at Wembley as I was that night because England was so kind of spineless in his in his judgment. Um and they sneaked through, Keegan said we qualified through the back door, maybe we'll come out the front door, all the usual sound bites. Yeah. I think one thing that sums up the Keegan era, I think, is they had kind of had the opposite of bounce-back ability. I don't know if it's what you call it, like fuck-up ability or something. But every virtue, they quickly made a a bad thing out of it. They like So they went through it. They beat Scotland 2-0 to qualify, and then they compromised by losing. So they still qualify, but it's really tarnished. They beat Germany at Euro 2000. I'm probably not spoiling the plot there. Then they lose to them in what turned out to be a bigger, more symbolic game a few months later. They go 2-0 up against Portugal, playing brilliant football, and they lose. Every... Every positive was eventually stripped away, um, and that made it even harder. I think for someone like Keegan, who kind of held on to those good times, and that to, to have those compromised directly—never mind kind of interspersed with bad times—I think became too much.
1: And throughout this, is he always is as he started at this point, And I can't remember. Has is, is he started to be treated a bit like a clown? Well, he always had a bit of being treated like a clown by the by the tabloids, didn't he? Is this starting to creep in now? Because there's the, the the story from the book that. You shared with us, Rob, about how he, he fell asleep and attacked.
0: That's brilliant. This is brilliant. Yeah, I think Derek Fazakli was one of his coaches who I think a lot of the players didn't like Fazakli, or at least didn't didn't respect him, it's probably a better better word, was giving a tactical talk such as it was. And apparently he looked over and Keegan's just doing that nodding thing where he just and he woke up at the start and they and they all found it hilarious. God bless Keegan, I mean. But it does feel quite symbolic. I think that was later on. The impression I get is that It was all, everyone kind of deep down knew that this isn't quite going as we thought, but (laughs) there were enough mitigating circumstances and good performances in between. So before Euro 2000, they played Argentina at home, due 0-0, but they were very good. Hesky had an absolute stormer. They also drew it home to Brazil. So there was enough, I think, it all ties in, I think, with that it'll be all right in the night. It'll magically click at Euro 2000. That's the attitude I get, particularly from reading a lot of autobiographies and being in an England Euro 2000 WhatsApp group. Illicitly, is that they all, it was only at that tournament and very quickly at that tournament because the environment they were in this cr- crappy hotel, they say, and everything else, and certainly the Portugal game, um, that then it was really when it started. And I think that's the case in the media too. Um, I think there was a bit of unease, but because I think there was also a sense, rightly, that it wasn't fair to judge Keegan until the tournament because it inherited a complete mess, hadn't been helped by injuries, and ultimately he had got England to the tournament, albeit in a slightly roundabout way. But Gary might have a different memory, I don't know.
2: Well, I, I, you wonder how much of this is kind of confirmation bias, but mm. maybe it was just in Keegan's character, just in the in what we knew about him. Is that it, it struck me there was always a, a, a kind of fragility, and I know we're going to talk about it more in part two, but you and I both felt, Rob, that when England were 2-0 up against Portugal, that we weren't going to win. and. Well, it,
0: interestingly, we weren't the only ones. So did David Beckham, yeah. was reading his, But he said, even at 2-0, even as we were going 2-0 up, I was really alarmed by how easily they were playing through us, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. To have that awareness in the middle of it, because Keegan was all about ignoring, it was all about the kind of top line, if you like. We're 2-0 up, you know, the good terms are coming back. But even within that, Beckham was kind of seeing the bigger picture.
2: Well, I was going to say, it's it's just that kind of fragility that... that it's hard to kind of pinpoint it. It's almost a kind of a agglomeration of, of the words that are said, the way the team turn out, the inconsistencies and you know, I just wonder sometimes is it at that time England had a lot of players and you're absolutely right, Robbie, we need to know where they were in their careers. But England as as they've had throughout a lot of their history, um, have had lots of players who were kind of seven and eights out of 10 at international level which is why we get seven and eight out of ten performances going through to uh, knockout stages but you know not getting past the 16 or the or the quarterfinals and so on and you just wonder if there was even a kind of Harry Kane like figurehead because Shearer by this time uh wasn't and you know arguably he he never uh was because he was a different kind of of character, but if if there was a gazer, if there was something they could coalesce around that wasn't the manager, that didn't have that kind of fragility, that had the the um, kind of uh, confidence that comes from youth, or confidence that comes with being a German taking a penalty, or a Cristiano Ronaldo, and so on. Now you know these these players and these people are few and far between. You look at all of those good players and you, you just think there's something missing, and the manager wasn't the one who was giving it because the manager was actually part of that same fragility that was within the team. And I just wonder, say, that might well be confirmation bias looking back. But who was surprised when Scotland came back and scored against England at Wembley? I know I wasn't.
0: Well, yeah, it's a good point. What I would say is, Keegan's England, the Keegan team generally, Certainly, in a broader sense, so I'm not talking within one game. There's no great kind of precedent for coming back from adversity, and I think it ties in what you're talking about, Zola. The minute it starts to go wrong, like Keegan's eyes, he can't act. He can't, and he's he's mm. so emotional, he's so invested. Yeah, like you think of the great managers, and they're all brilliant actors to some degree or another. I don't think Keegan could act at all. He, he's like, you know, all these talk about card games, but I bet he was crap at poker. He just, he just didn't. <laughs> he didn't have it in him. So when it, and there's that sad, I always think of that sadness in his eyes. And and I think that doesn't, you know, it's not directly, it's not like he's, although apparently he would single out Owen a lot, which just seems weird. But anyway, that's another point. But generally, it's not like he's saying, oh, let me down to everything. Generally, collectively be optimistic, but the face tells a different story. And I think that transmits itself to a lot of the players. And this was a harder group as well. I'll just throw
2: in, yeah, I'll just throw in an example which will appeal to you, uh, Rob. I mm. think it's partly because Steve Bruce scored that goal in the fortieth minute of Ferguson. time. <laughs> uh, third half. when, yeah, when the uh, when Solciar comes on uh, against Bayern Munich, was it? You mm. know, the the That again, it's... it wasn't a surprise that they scored those goals because Steve Bruce no. scored that goal, and you kind of sensed, or I certainly got it, that, that yeah, the bench were themselves. expecting these things to happen yeah. because there was some evidence for it where under Keegan and under England, the fragility was the other way round. You expected them to do a Devon lock because they Devon locked before. You know? No, I um, think that's completely
1: true. There's something about genuine leadership and living the values and all that. stuff. Yeah. I'm doing an
2: NBA in a minute, can't you? But it's, <laughs>
1: but, the, 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 but it's true though, actually. and, and people have, Human beings are very quick to pick up on people who aren't being honest. And I don't yeah. think he's being deliberately dishonest. He was being dishonest for the right reasons, if yes. you know what I mean. Because yes. he'd have been saying, you can do this, lads, but like you said, Rob, he said, Well, I'm looking at your eyes and <laughs> you look like you're about to burst into tears. So I don't <laughs> think that's not in a good not in and not in an inspirational way. You know, it's kind of um So I think that's true. There's a great you mentioned Heskey playing well. We'll wind up this, this part now before we start Euro two thousand in part two, but uh, David Lacey's match report of that Argentina game. Lineker was a born finisher and a natural taker of goals. Heskey is more of a hunter, being about the bushes and disturbing prey, but not yet a gifted marksman. If he has a role to play in England for England in Euro 2000, it will principally, be involved, it will principally involve extending the international career of Alan Shearer, who, mm. like Caesar, has expressed the desire to be surrounded by large men. <laughs> <laughs>
0: David Lacey is uh, the one of the joys of this podcast is going back and usually researching by finding Lacey's stuff because it's just uh, he's just a joy he's the greatest football writer I've ever read and he's, uh, a
1: he, he makes a point I see that Shearer's scoring a lot of goals at this point because he's in partnership with Duncan Ferguson yeah. at Newcastle and yeah. maybe they're trying to replicate that in some way but anyway yeah,
2: yeah. Jan Owen has a lean and hungry look <laughs> such men are dangerous <laughs> let me have men about me who are hesky <laughs>
0: Honestly, I can't recommend enough. Just before you wrap up, if you're bored, just type in David Lacey Guardian and just read anything. It's a...
1: <laughs> so I think that brings us to the. We're up to the qualification for Euro 2000. There, we've explored a bit of Keegan. We've done Gianfranco Zoro, That brings us to the end. So we'll do the Euro two, the England Euro 2000 experience. In the next uh, and Keegan's rolling it in the next episode. (laughs) Yeah, in the next in the next part. And so there's a
2: happy-go-lucky thing to look
1: forward to. Obviously, we'll probably we've been discussing this that we'll probably do Euro 2000 as a separate. Yeah,
0: it's too good not to entire tournament because it's so
1: amazing. Also, you know, we're starting to say we'll probably be relaxed. We say we're 80s and 90s football podcast, but if we've got to creep into the 2000s or or the 70s, actually, we're not too worried about that if it's if it's within the sort of you know. Uh, the canon of what we're trying to do, so I think that's fine. Well, well, we've decided it's fine, so you know you could tell us if it's not, but that's what we're doing. And Rob won't hear it because he's not at on Gary Naylor <laughs> And Rob just runs away if you say anything, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Rob. Cheers,
0: lads. That was fun.
1: And thank you for everybody out there who's listening. And thank you. And don't forget, you can give us your support at Patreon.com. <laughs> Slash Ness on That's the last <laughs> time I mentioned it. Until the next episode, take care, everybody. Bye.
2: Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.